Hello, and thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with Dr. Susanna Greer. Hi, Susanna. Hey, Joe. This interview was with Dr. Abby Rosenberg. She, um, amazing person. She's a director of the Palliative Care and Resilience Research at Seattle Children's Research Institute. So Susanna, she she went deep on this concept of resilience and how she's, um, you know, the focus of her research is aimed at helping this really vulnerable population. Yeah, I love this conversation with Abby. Her work is, oh my gosh, really moving the needle to help teens and young adults who've been diagnosed with cancer to develop, I think, kind of this bucket of resources that they need to help them through their diagnosis and treatment and, uh, and survival. Um, and then Abby dives a little bit deeper to help um, a portion of those patients whose cancer recurs who have to answer some really difficult questions about um, who they are and what they want uh, the rest of what may be a limited amount of time, what they want the rest of their life to look like and their impact to be. Um. So she has developed this fantastic uh, program that helps to promote resilience and helps these young cancer patients to manage stress. So. I'll let Abby tell you all about it. Um, it's one of those things that it absolutely took my breath away as she was explaining the challenges that these patients go through and the opportunities for this program to help fill these buckets and these skill sets uh, that can really change the way that this vulnerable population handles cancer and that can impact their families and then obviously can be taken in a bigger way to impact anyone who is in a challenging situation, whether it's um, an, a cancer patient who's not a teen or young adult or someone who's facing adversity, maybe from another disease or another challenging situation. So she's a lovely person. Her research is amazing, and you're going to really enjoy hearing from her. Thanks, Susanna. So let's listen to your conversation with her right now. Hey, Abby, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm good. Thank you. How are you? I am well. I am well. I'm really interested to have this conversation with you, but I think it's not going to be an easy one. You work in a really challenging space. So today we're going to spend some time talking about a cancer diagnosis for a population um, it's just especially tough. So for teenagers and young adults. Um, so I think I want to start off by saying thank you for what you do in this space. I think it's critically important, and I'm excited to learn more. Well, thanks. I'm happy to be here. All right. So a lot of our conversation today is going to be focused on resilience, specifically in this population of cancer patients. But maybe we could just level set with our audience. Um, could you help us by just telling us how do you define resilience? Yeah, it's a great question. The way we define resilience is that it is a process where people bring to themselves or harness a set of resources that they need to get through adversity. And I say that because most of us, when we think of resilient people, we identify people who seem to be doing better than you would expect after some particular adversity. 
But then if you ask yourself, what do I do? What do I actually do when things get hard? We all act and behave a certain way. And those certain ways tend to be universal, be it cancer or natural disaster or war or poverty. And so how we bring those particular resources to ourselves and how successfully we can do that is how I define resilience. Okay, I really love that. So you talk about resilience as a a process of how we use resources. And it seems like you're saying that in particular situations, we all have these resources at hand and may or may not be able to access them. Yeah. um, So what's really interesting about the literature is that the types of resources, for lack of a better word, that people harness to themselves are always one of three types. One is individual resources. So the idea of who am I as a person, this is where a lot of the stuff that we see in the lay culture comes from, like grit, hardiness, who am I as an individual and what do I do? And a lot of these are skills that we learn along the way, stress management, coping skills, things that help people. The second set of resources is community-based. So who helps us? Who are the people that you reach out to for help? Who are the people who rally around you to support you? And then the last set of resources is what I call existential resources. And this is the inherent human experience of asking, why is this happening to me? What does this mean for me in my life? How does this change my identity and who I thought I would be or what I thought I would become in the future, what I thought my family would look like, et cetera, et cetera. And our our question in particular when we were talking about teens and young adults was twofold. One is, are these young people, people who have not had an opportunity in life to figure that out yet? So, you know, maybe us older adults have had either good or bad experiences where we've figured out what our resources are. Many young people haven't really had any chance to be exposed to adversity yet, and so they can't actually answer the question, what do I do when things get hard? Um, And then the second question was, could we take from teenagers and young adults who have already been through their cancer what they learned, what they thought had helped them, and then turn that into a way of, in real time saying to teens who are now newly diagnosed and struggling with this for the first time, hey, you know what, like this is what other people taught us that helped them. Can we teach it back to you so you don't have to figure it out on your own? Oh, that's really interesting. So I've never thought about that before, but you're exactly right that, yeah, if you just haven't been on this planet that long, you're at a real disadvantage when something bad happens just as far as knowing how to deal with that and um, really having developed the skill set of what you defined as resilience. So uh, that's really interesting. All right. So it sounds like. I will say to all of the families who are dealing with, with cancer in older patients, it is still very, very, very hard. And this is never to say that they have it all figured out and they have it easier because my guess is that they use the same sets of resources and, and again, the idea would be here's an exposure to a bunch of different resources that people use, and maybe these are things you already do and you can do better, and maybe these are things that you haven't thought of before that you can start to develop. And that's true in particular for teens and young adults, but it's probably true for everybody who's going through adversity. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's put a name to it then. So you've developed this really interesting program called PRISM, which stands for Promoting Resilience in Stress Management. So tell us a little bit more about PRISM. 
Yeah, so PRISM was or is the curriculum that teaches these resilience resources. First, it was designed for teens and young adults by teens and young adults, and now we have actually adapted it to deliver it to parents of kids with cancer as well. Mm. And kind of like what I was saying before, we started with directly going to patients and families and saying, how have you done this? How did you do it? How are you doing it? You know, we just sort of asked people, not only in retrospect, but in real time, what were the things that were helping them to be resilient? And we heard the same messages over and over and over again. And so really in over hundreds of hours of interviews at different time points in people's cancer experiences, we heard the same resilience resources coming out. And this was particularly true for adolescents and young adults. And so the first thing that the teens and young adults said really over and over again was that they figured out how to or needed help managing the simple uncertainty and anxiety and stress of having cancer, the mm. sort of newness of the experience. And, and it wasn't complicated for them. It was basic skills in naming their own emotional state without judgment, so mindfulness skills, deep breathing skills, relaxation skills, simple ways to say, okay, how am I feeling right now and how am I going to hold on to that? emotion. So that is a module that we call stress management, and we essentially teach people some basic relaxation, mindfulness, and deep breathing techniques. The second thing that we heard from people was that it was really helpful to have concrete goal-setting skills. So for example, when I talk to a teen or a young adult at the beginning of their cancer experience, and I'll say, what is your goal? They'll say, well, I just want to get through this. Hmm. And what people told us is that what helped them was not to have that particular goal in mind, although that was always at the back of their heads, but more how do you translate that into something where there are like checkmarkable processes so they can say, I got through this particular thing or I'm moving forward and they could visualize and achieve a forward momentum. And so right. we translated that into a curriculum for teaching people how to set realistic, measurable actionable, time-dependent goals where they could maintain that momentum and see that forward thought process in real time. Hmm. So those were the individual resources that we heard from people. The next thing we heard was that people were really struggling with and developing existential resources. And so again, this is that like the why me, the -hmm. what does this mean for me in my life appraisal. And so the first thing we did was we, we created a curriculum that in psychology terms is called, um, cognitive reappraisal or cognitive restructuring. And what that means is, you know, the thought that wakes you up in the middle of the night at like three o'clock in the morning and you're really worrying about it. You can't turn off your head. So the first thing we do is we help people quiet that self-talk so they can just calm their brains, manage those thoughts. And then the next thing we do is we help them reappraise the experience from something that is really negative and destructive to something that is at least realistic and manageable if not optimistic. And then the final existential resource we teach is very simple, uh, but it is the final anchor and I think probably the most important in the whole thing. And this is the idea of identifying gratitude, meaning, purpose, legacy, and, and, and attaching that appraisal to, okay, who am I going to be now? Hmm. So what we do is very simple. We just say, um, this must be really hard. Can you think of one good thing that has happened to you because of this? Hmm. And so, so for example, those last two in combination for a teen might be, you know, oh, my gosh, I have no friends anymore. And the cognitive reappraisal is, 
well, yeah, my friends have changed, and a lot of my friendships are different than what I thought they would be as a freshman in high school. And then the final anchor, the meaning-making one is, and I've really learned what it means to have good friends because Susie comes to visit me every day in the hospital, and Joe keeps texting me what's happening in English class, and that's really important to me. And so anyway, so the, the arc of all of those is the stress management, the goal setting, the cognitive reappraisal, and then the meaning making. We teach those in a little curriculum one-on-one to the teens. We have a digital companion app where they can practice the skills and log their journal of gratitudes and upload pictures that are reminding them of particularly meaningful things, et cetera, et cetera. And then following all of those four sessions, they have a family meeting where the teen can teach back to his or her parents what was helpful, and that that not only reinforces the skill for the patient, but it also helps the family to continue to support the teen and the young adult. You know, as you were talking, I just had this pit in my stomach, but by the end of that, it was just a little lift of this positive inflection. Um, I mean, it's so hard. It's so, Mm -hmm. so hard to think about teens and young adults with cancers. Um, And I know you deal with some really, really sick patients, but um, this just just sounds like such a fantastic resource. So I, I would like to know, were you surprised at all that these resources were so universal? I think that's so, I mean, it's fantastic. Um, And it's so interesting that we all are kind of going back to the same net group of resources to make it through tough times. Yeah, you know, I find that fascinating. When we started, we really thought this was going to be a very specific to adolescents and young adult cancer type of program. And and that was my goal because I really do believe this is a group of patients where we need to spend a lot of energy thinking about how to support them. And what is really interesting to me is when you look at, like, um, anthropology literature, so people who, like, go around the world and watch what populations do through adversity, be it, again, natural disaster or war or poverty or um, you name it, illness, the sets of resources really are always the same. And, mm. and now in my work, I do this a lot where I'll talk to, for example, to patients or to faculty or staff at different hospitals, and I'll say to them, like, what do you do? The answers are really always the same. People always identify these individual community-based or existential resources, they just don't necessarily use that language. So they'll say, well, you know, like I have a really good way of managing stress by going running, and then I read books to calm my mind, and then I have this set of girlfriends who helps me when I'm really unhappy. Like that's an individual and a community-based set of resources right there. And so when you put it into these universal buckets, it becomes much more actionable for us to then say, how do we teach this back to people using language that they, within their own mind or within their social networks or within their family, can continue to leverage and and call upon when needed? All right. So that begs the question, if these are universal, and this seems like such a really wonderful skill set to help, well, quite frankly, any of us develop, but especially people who are facing adversity um, in the cancer space. So is this something, the, the PRISM curriculum that you've developed, is, 
is there the potential for it to become part of a um, mobile health technology? So something that would be available on an iPhone or an iPad or yeah. to people, no matter where they are. Yeah. So that's my dream. Um, my, my vision, if you will, is that we get this kind of program, be it prison or something else, but this kind of psychosocial supportive program into the hands of every single patient with cancer and every caregiver of a patient with cancer because I, I really do think that it is a simple and necessary way to support people. What it looks like on a scalable level, like in a digital format, for example, as you're describing, that I think is less clear. And here's why. So the, the easy answer is you put, it on, you put it on the app store and you make it available for everybody and it's this thing that they can download. Mm-hmm. And then when you think about it, I don't, I don't know if you guys have teenage kids. I do, and obviously I work with a lot of teenagers. They have about a 1,000 apps on their phone that they maybe open once, maybe a few times. But most of the time, you never even open things on your phone. And in particular for teens and young adults, even though their language is digital now and they do a lot of work in the digital space, they are also inherently social creatures. Mm. And the power of a human connection, the power of somebody sitting next to you and saying, hey, you know what, another person just like you taught me this and I want to teach it back to you, is, is something that we cannot forget. And so one of the things that we're doing now in our lab is we're trying to figure out essentially like what's the right dose of digital versus human interaction to make this the easiest thing that we can disseminate. And it may actually require some human connection that is not simply digital. So I do think we could put it on the App Store and we could make it that widely available. I worry that it wouldn't be as effective. It's sure. certainly better than nothing, but it's, it's, it's probably not the ideal model. And that's what I, as a scientist, I'm trying to figure out. Well, I was going to ask you, I mean, I, I think all scientists have something they're particularly excited about or that's keeping you up at night. So... What is that for you? What's going on right now in your lab? Well, two things. So one is what I just said is how do we make this, this again, quote, scalable? Like how do we put this in as many people's hands as possible, even beyond cancer, for example? Could we make this something that's available for a lot of people with serious illness? That would sure. be fabulous. And I really want to figure out how to do that in a sustainable and effective way. The other thing that I think is is what PRISM teaches is these basic, it's almost like 1.0 resilience resources, right? Like you start, it's the foundation, these four things that we have heard again and again are important. It's not complete though. So what it is missing, for example, is the social and community-based resource building tools. I think that looks inherently different. So we're trying to figure out how do we add to our arsenal by, by creating more on the menu without compromising people's willingness to participate in the, in the program. Um, and then are there actually disease-specific things that we do need to add in? And so I'll give you an example of the latter. Um, the American Cancer Society is actually helping support this endeavor where in our work with teens and young adults, when their cancer came back, in the subset of patients who then had what I would say is advanced or incurable cancer, they said, you know, Abby, these skills are really great, and now I'm in a different place, and the things that I'm worrying about are really unique. And, mm-hmm. for example, what I would really like to be able to do is you, PRISM taught me how to address, address what's important to me and what my goals are, 
And now I need a way of talking to my family about that because it's likely that I might not survive my cancer. And so what the American Cancer Society is helping us to do right now is develop an additional module for patients with advanced cancer that includes some very hard advanced care planning conversations about what matters to them, what what their legacy would look like, um, what kinds of things they would really value if their cancer were incurable. And um, I think that additional potentially optional module in a cancer library, for example, will be really important to a subset of patients. Mm, it sounds like it could just be an amazing resource in a, uh, what is a unbelievably challenging time. So Right, right. Uh, how, and so, how, so the the thing that keeps sorry uh, the thing that you that I think about a lot is how could we continue to expand this so that there's a library of resources and here's your basic 1.0 and then there's the 2.0 module that teaches really more specific maybe disease specific or other life specific types of scenarios to help people navigate those types of adversities. Absolutely. How adept are your colleagues at uptake of PRISM, um, especially this, I'd be interested to know, these are really, really hard conversations that patients are going to have with you, with your team, but I would assume also with their um, primary care doctors, with their oncologists. Um, How is your community supporting you? Well, our community is fabulous. We have a terrific really talented research team here who has helped to develop PRISM, uh, including the co-creator of it, Joyce E. Frazier, who is a health psychologist and and my partner in all of this. (laughs) And between the two of us, we have a a team where people really believe in the idea. And because it was born here at Seattle Children's Hospital, a lot of people here at the hospital are familiar with the program. And it's fairly easy for us to implement it here because Mm -hmm. our staff and clinical staff are are fans of it. What I I would say, though, to answer your question, is broader than that, we designed this to be a curriculum that you could teach with a college degree. It it is deliberately not something that a physician or a nurse or a psychologist or a social worker has to deliver. In fact, we have successfully trained college grads who, in some ways, are really great for the AYA patients, the adolescents and young adult patients, because they have some age similarities where, like, if I come in as this sort of older lady, mom-aged person, then the teens might look at me like rolling their eyes. But if a young person comes in and says, hey, this is what we heard from people like you, I'm going to teach it back to you, it, it really resonates. And so the beauty of that is you don't need a PhD to teach PRISM. You need to be able to learn how to have social conversation with someone in a sort of constructed way. We, we have a whole script and a very rigid curriculum so that essentially anybody can learn how to teach it as long as they practice it enough to deliver the words fluently. So you've set this up in a, a remarkable way where broad dissemination is a real possibility. You're just trying now to determine the best way for that to happen. That's right. That's right. So I read that you said once that PRISM normalizes the hard. I'd be really interested mm-hmm. to know what you mean by that. Yeah, um, I think what, what PRISM does is it says to a teen or a young adult, 
can't be, this is stressful. This is hard. Your life has just changed. And and I will say anecdotally, this, um, you know, a lot of young people really resist that idea, especially at the beginning. What I hear from a lot of them is, I just want my life to go back to normal. And there's this idea early on that their life is, quote, on pause, and suddenly after their cancer treatment, they'll go back to whoever they were. Mm-hmm. And we know from human human experiences across millennia that that's just simply not true that most of the time when we have a hard time something in us changes and hopefully it's for the better but it's not always and so what I really think is important for teens and young adults to hear is it's okay to think this is hard and this is stressful and it's okay for you to feel like right now you might not be resilient Hmm. that doesn't mean you are not globally resilient it means that any given day can feel very, very difficult, if not impossible to get through. And we are here walking beside you to help you navigate that because we know that we can help you to arrive at that other side of the hard. Well, the ACS is awfully proud of you and proud to be involved. Um, oh, thank you. What a huge need you're filling. All right. I have just one last question. Um, as you know, a lot of the folks that listen to our podcast are cancer patients or folks who love them. So is there a particular message you would like to share with that group? Yeah. Uh, thank you to all, to all of them. Um, we worked with so many brilliant patients and parents, and I have such tremendous respect for their insight and their willingness to help me to help other people. I uh, I think every day about all of those patients and families and how difficult their lives must be. And for us as a community to try to support them is so important, and I'm really grateful that they have helped us to do that. Well, we're grateful for you, Abby, and your colleagues and all you're doing, and we'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for sharing your time with thank us. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Okay. Take care, Abby. Bye. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.